Coming up on this week's show, a Pong RPG game. Atari opened their own casino. And we get some amazing stories from Psygnosis, Bullfrog and EA with Graham Bell. This week's show is brought to you by Retro Gamer Magazine, the essential guide to classic games. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 219, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. Now, for the first time ever, we're not in the same room. We're recording this week's show remotely. This does feel a little bit weird already, I've got to say, guys. It is strange, remote retro hour. And, you know, I've actually contracted the virus, so I can't be in the same yeah. room as you guys. But don't worry, I have recovered. Ravi's already thrashed corona. Yeah, <laughs> He's completed it, mate. <laughs> so let's just get a little picture of where you guys are then. Joe, no, you're at your, your kitchen table yeah, so, doing the show. So this is kind of normal for me because I've been working from home for the last two weeks anyway from my kitchen table. As well as my laptop, I've got a nice expensive mic. Uh, which Dan sent to me in the post. So uh, it, it's a little bit weird, but it's kind of cool at the same time. And to be fair, Joe normally does a show just in his pants anyway. So <laughs> yeah, so it doesn't make a difference <laughs> to me anyway. <laughs> and Ravi, you're in your study at home? Yeah, I'm in my study surrounded by retro equipment. Um, I've got a medium wave radio and a vinyl player here. We hope the show is going to go all right. It's a little bit new for us doing it remotely, but... Um, I hope you'll excuse any differences in sound quality or anything like that. Obviously, it's only temporary until we can all get back together, which hopefully won't be too long. But look, the show's going to be just as good as always. We've got an incredible guest coming up this week. Now, on the Retro Hour podcast, we like to bring you stories of video game companies and games that we grew up playing. And I couldn't name three bigger companies in the world of video games than Cygnosis, Bullfrog and EA. So this week I'm going to be interviewing Graham Bell. Now, Graham Bell is fantastic. He's a video game artist and designer, and he created a lot of promotional stuff for the PlayStation, you know, magazine covers, retail store stuff. But then he went and joined Cygnosis and Bullfrog. Now, those were huge companies, but they kind of died during the PlayStation period. They had a really good start. So we talk about what happened and, you know, if there were any cancelled games, any really cool cancelled projects. So this is going to be a good one. Graham Bell is going to be our guest on the show in around 20 minutes from now. Now, before we get into the news stories this week, I mean, um, we actually recorded a few shows back to back before lockdown. So we've got a fair bit of catching up to do actually this week. So we'll update you on everything that's been happening in the world of retro gaming very soon. But before we do that, if you are maybe killing a bit of time at home at the moment, maybe doing the homeschooling thing with the kids. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I think um, when was the last time you left the house? I think my missus has been out for about two weeks now. Uh, I've actually been going for a walk every day uh, around yeah. lunchtime, but I literally just walk around the block, which takes half an hour. But that's literally yeah. all I'm doing. <laughs> I, I'm walking around the garden in circles. That's my exercise. <laughs> you don't need to mow the lawn. You just walk it down. Yeah. Well, obviously, at the moment, everyone's looking for a bit of entertainment and stuff to take your mind off everything that's going on. And, of course, we want to give a huge thank you to the essential guide to classic gaming, our very good friends at Retro Gamer Magazine, who are back on board this week. Now, I'm sure anyone that listens to our podcast will have read Retro Gamer before. But if you haven't, obviously, it's the only high street magazine dedicated to all aspects of retro gaming and every month they bring you exclusive access to classic developers giving you behind the scenes stories and also covering classic machines and their games libraries revisited getting expert insight in there as well and revisiting all those games that you grew up playing and uncovering fascinating new facts as well now the current issue is all about the most brutal video games console war ever sega versus nintendo 
Yeah, oh, it's fantastic. I've got a copy here and, you know, they've got a head-to-head comparison, which I am actually really love because you remember the games on Sega used to be a bit more violent and uh, there, there may be, like, not as much blood on the SNES version, but the SNES version might have been a bit faster. You know, there's a lot of differences. So they've got comparisons with the games here, T2 Arcade, Mortal Kombat, Street Fighter 2, but they've also got about the really kind of controversial advertising campaigns and this this comes from both camps you know um yeah here's one that talks about uh it's a game boy advert and it says why did the hedgehog cross the road to get to super mario land 2 and (laughs) on the other side you've got the mega drive echo the dolphin being advertised here and it said do it all with echo weed speed and blow well that's the thing i mean sega always did seem a lot more edgy didn't they and they they always kind of put nintendo down like you know mario was like you know he was a fat overweight plumber who moved slowly then sonic came along and he had all this attitude and everything and i was talking to a friend about this a couple of weeks ago the fact that i know obviously we've got like playstation switch and xbox today but it doesn't feel anything like the playground wars that we used to have back in the 90s i think because everything's so similar these days you know they've all got very very similar you know specs and stuff whereas back in the day it it was it was completely different and it was very rare that you got the exact same you never got the exact same game the exact same experience on both consoles if that makes sense yeah yeah Yeah, the titles are like pretty much the same on both at the moment you're right yeah whereas back then it were different games you know the aladdin game came out it was two different games so you know i do miss that so Reading these magazine, reading Retro Gamer magazine about it and stuff just brings back those amazing memories. They've also got a huge article here, which is the history of Animal Crossing as well. And, you know, they're still making Animal Crossing games. And, oh, my God, this is fantastic. Anybody who's a fan of that series needs to check this out. And they talk about skid marks as well. Oh, yeah, that was. amazing. <laughs> so if you want to get hold of the magazine that will give you everything you need to know about classic games, Retro Gamer magazine, their spring sale is actually on right now with our good friends of Future Publishing. Now, you know we always get you the best offers here on the Retro Hour podcast. So what about this? We want to give you five issues of Retro Gamer magazine for just five pounds. Now, normally that would be... 25 quid if you bought it from the shop. We want to give you five copies for just a fiver. And there are loads of other magazines you can choose from as well, including official PlayStation, Edge, PC Gamer, all five for five pounds. And all you've got to do to claim this offer, do it right now while it's on. We get so many people like contacting us like a few months down the line going, oh, I missed it. So listen, do this right now. Myfavoritemagazines.co.uk forward slash spring. 209. So that's my favorite magazines.co.uk forward slash spring 209. And if you need that link again, it will be in our show notes. Thanks to our good friends at Retro Gamer, the essential guide to classic games. And you know, you don't need to go out to the shops to get it as well. It's just going to get delivered straight to your door. Absolutely. So uh, if you need something to keep you uh, keep you entertained during lockdown, definitely worth a read. Retro Gamer is always a good read, isn't it? Oh, totally. Now, speaking of not going out, of course, um, most of the events, well, pretty much all the events that we had coming up over the next six months have been postponed. I know uh, we talked about Retro Spill Messen, um, Play Expo Manchester um, has obviously now been postponed, and uh, Flashback 2020, um, I think it's fair to say that probably all the all the events that were planned over the next few months are not going to be going ahead now. Hopefully, you know, these events can pick up again and people can feel confident about going to video game events and going to places like that. Yeah, and of course, we'll keep you up to date with uh, any developments there. And um, it's been a bit of a sad week, actually, for um, a really good friend of ours, because um, anyone that listens to our podcast, we always get compliments about how how nice our logo is and our artwork and that kind of thing. And that's all thanks to one guy, the extremely talented 
Paul Kitching. Now, Paul's done our graphics and animations and everything since day one. Yeah, he's um, done a lot of graphics, actually. He's done graphics for probably the whole retro gaming community. You know, he's yeah. uh, done a lot of stuff free for events. Um, and uh, the RetroCon uh, Greenford one he did as well. He's done a hell of a lot of logos and really nice stuff. Yeah, and if you ever watch movies like Viva Amiga, you know, you'll see all his incredible 3D artwork in there that he's done. Um, really good guy, but obviously he had a bit of sad news recently when his, uh, his mother passed away. And obviously at the moment with everything going on, times are pretty hard for everybody. So there is um, a bit of a fundraiser going on right now. So we're asking, if you can, we know that times are hard for everybody, but if you can dig deep, um, help Paul overcome the trauma and um, the burden of obviously having to pay the funeral bill as well, um, which is coming up on April the 14th. So there's actually a little donation page on Facebook running right now so if you've enjoyed the retro hour then you know we'd appreciate if everyone can get involved in this and just donate what you can to help paul out during this difficult time he's you know he's a top guy paul isn't he he's he's kind of one of the retro hour background stuff that you you yeah. never really hear about but you see his work everywhere yeah so if you want to find out um how you donate to that i'll put it it's actually set up by david pleasancy a former commodore uk md so uh if you want to check that out i'll put that in our show notes along with all the other stories we talk about this week at the retrohour.com now let's get into this week's news and this actually kind of follows on quite nicely from uh, last week's show when i was talking to al alcorn of course the father of pong i never thought i'd see the day when pong was made into an rpg game though yeah so atari are teaming up with a british development company called checkered inc to bring us pong quest which just looks absolutely insane. I was uh, watching the trailer for it this morning. So far, we've only got the minute-long trailer. Yeah, essentially, they've turned the Pong paddles into an RPG game, and it just looks absolutely insane. It plays like, you know, a 16-bit era RPG, and it's got like over 50 special Pong ball upgrades, <laughs> and it just looks absolutely insane that they've built this huge game out of Pong. <laughs> it's pretty cool, apparently- they've They've changed the paddles into, like, little customizable characters yeah so you can pick clothes and kind of different styles it's amazing yeah so you the pong the pong paddles are the characters and then the pong balls are like your upgrades and like your magic spells and stuff like that and like i really want to get my hands on this and it's coming it is going to be out on xbox one playstation 4 switch and pc coming this spring we've not got a release date yet but I'm definitely going to be playing that as soon as it comes out. I love the way they've described the, the character as a, you'll be cast into the role of a brave young paddle. <laughs> <laughs> and this is official Atari as well. Yeah, it's coming officially from Atari as well, yeah. So if you want to get a hold of that, that, that is, I mean, Pong's been remade and reimagined so many times over the years, but making it into a role-playing game, I think that is something none of us saw coming. Yeah, I think that's, that's definitely a new one on me. So if you want to get hold of that, we'll keep an eye on that. And of course, when we get a release date, we'll, uh, we'll let you know about it. I always love it when classic games that were released on you know systems back in the day, they kind of get lost, get uncovered. Now, it turns out there is a game I'm sure you'll be extremely excited about, boys, that's now been uncovered for the Sega Master System. And this is a traffic safety game. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so this game is called Traffic Safety. And from there's not a lot of information about it, but... From what I understand, it's like a kind of like a game that helps you pass your driving test in Japan. Right. From what I understand, and it was only ever made 200 to 300 cartridges of it, which are kind of like, you know, when you go to do like your driving test, they, they were there like to help you or something. Um, like the driving theory kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, like your driving yeah. theory <laughs> test kind of thing. And it never kind of took off, unfortunately. But in October 2019, one of the cartridges surfaced on Yahoo 
Yahoo Auctions, which is like the bigger one in Japan. They don't use, they do use eBay, but Yahoo Auctions is like their big, their book auction site. And a company called the MPO Game Preservation Society managed to actually get a hold of it. They managed to win the auction in October and they've recently dumped the ROM uh, online for us all to play. So it's like one of these like holy grail master system games that nobody's ever heard of. Well, this looks crazy. I'm watching some footage at the moment and there's like lots of kids gathered around playing it. So maybe I'm thinking it it might be a bit like kind of, you know, tips on how to cross the road and how cars behave correctly and stuff. And I think like we got the green cross code when we were kids. They got a Nintendo game. Well, okay. So yeah, I'm I'm not watched the video till now. So I'm just watching it now. And yeah, so it's not more, it's less theory and it's more, yeah, like traffic safety for children then. Well, apparently one of these cartridges did go on um, Yahoo Auctions. It was put up for $33,000. Oh, and wow. then um, apparently there was one of them sold outside the auction privately. But it is insane what people will pay for these, you know, really rare games that nobody else has got. These like private collectors have got that kind of money. Because looking at it, all right, I mean, it, if you want to learn how road traffic safety worked in Japan in the late 80s, then knock yourself out i'm sure you'll find this really interesting but you've got to admit it's quite a niche market for a game yeah it's pretty niche i can't i can't really see like the next kind of retro hour you know live stream of this gaming as all huddled around the master system playing it really <laughs> and i know you've said that i really want to do it yeah we might have to get a hold of it now and do it it's very specific as well isn't it because like every country has their own set of traffic rules and safety standards so <laughs> you are just learning japanese traffic law it could come in handy yeah for, for your next trip out there to uh raid the retro gaming markets yeah unless they've changed it since 1988 <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'll just pull that if i get pulled over or something i'll just be like yeah. oh but well, i learned it from this so just make sure your master system's in your bag with that game at yeah, all times. exactly. Now, there's been another development in the uh, it's seemingly never-ending drama that is the new um, Atari VCS console, of course. Um, still no sign of it yet, and obviously we know a lot of stuff's been delayed with the uh, the current events in the world. But, you know, we were talking last year, actually, about the people that were working on the new Atari VCS console. And uh, one of those people was um, one of the guys who was one of the uh, original architects on the Xbox who was involved in this, and... It turns out that um, Rob Wyatt, that's a guy's name, he's actually filed a lawsuit against Atari Game LLC saying that they've failed to pay him nearly $262,000 for the work that he did on the console. Ouch. Ouch. I mean, surely that's like a couple of years' worth of work. That's not like a couple of weeks' worth of work, you know, for it to be like $262,000. Yeah, that's pretty well paid if so, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I think that's the main appeal at the moment. Like, you know, the Atari VCS, they they still haven't announced that much stuff, special titles and stuff, but it looks nice. Yeah, well, I think it's just it just seems like this whole project, just when you think things are kind of going all right with it and maybe it's getting back on track, it seems like there's like another bump in the road. It just feels like riddled with drama. A hasn't cursed, it, isn't one. it? Yeah, it does kind of feel like that. And obviously it's not a good sign if um, one of the main developers on the system's suing them for quarter of a million dollars worth of lost work. So, I mean, obviously until it kind of goes to court, we uh, you know, we won't really know the ins and outs of that. But I think it, it just doesn't... It's one other bit of bad PR that they didn't need in this project, I think. Yeah, it's like Ravi says it's cursed, but all I keep seeing is this bad PR and it's like so much of it just seems to be... Obviously, we don't always know the full story, like Dan says, until the court case comes out and stuff. But 
it just all seems to be self-inflicted. Like they're the ones not paying people. They're the ones not meeting goals and stuff like that. Yeah. And and I think that is the reason why people have given it the benefit of the doubt is because the case looks nice. Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Yeah, that, that is it. Cause, I mean, it's pretty much a bog standard PC with their kind of own software running on there. But ha- having a gaming PC in that case, I must admit that is probably the only thing that appeals to me about it. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. At the end of the day, like, could they have just not just released the case? Do you know what I mean? All this effort. Yeah. <laughs> when they could have just released the case for people to then make their own PCs in it. That wouldn't be a bad shout, actually. No. They could have got that out like two years ago. Yeah, they? they literally could have got that out like when it all started two, three years ago. But then but then if they lose the rights to use the case now, what is there left? I'm looking at the comments here on Ask Technica on the article as well. Someone's saying, uh, is this going to be Atari's next ET moment when they crash the gaming market again? <laughs> that's severe. I don't, I, don't think the, uh, the, I don't think this is going to crash the gaming market somehow. You don't think it's got the power to kill the uh, Nintendo I, Switch? I don't think it has somehow, but I think it'd be inter- it's definitely an interest, you know, like interesting to, um, to follow it and follow the developments which are kind of happening with it and kind of see the ship kind of trying to stay afloat and maybe we'll see it sink, maybe we'll see it sail, we don't Because it had a hell of a lot of backers at the beginning, but like, mm. I don't know how many it will have now after all of the stuff, how many people have pulled out and stuff, you know. And there's been no confirmation of, you know, dates and everything yet, but I imagine that original, uh, well, obviously we're past March 2020, which I think was when uh, we heard it was going to be out. Obviously still no sign of it yet, but we know a lot of retro projects have been delayed due to manufacturing issues and obviously people having no money at the moment as well. So we'll keep an eye on it. I mean, it does seem like most of the stories we're getting about it at the moment are not all that positive, but, you know, it could turn the tide. Like I said, I just want one of these systems just for the look of it because I think it looks really cool, but... Yeah, we, we shall see how that goes. Now, a system that obviously didn't need any help because it took over the world and uh, still to this day regarded as one of the best home consoles ever. Nice when we get new developments for the original PlayStation. Now, this is really cool, the PS1 Digital. Now, this is a little addition that you can put inside your original PlayStation. It's a bit of a hard, hardware mod that you put in there that gives you a lot of new functionality, particularly in terms of the, the visual output. Yeah, this is crazy. It's basically um, under development at the moment. And what it is, is it's called the PS1 Digital. It's a tiny little FPGA, which is a, a fully programmable gate array, which is a little board that you can kind of tell to do certain things. And this sits on top of a few chips. I think there may be a bit of soldering required because I see it's connected with ribbon cables. So right. I, I'm, I'm not that good at PlayStation knowledge, so not sure. But it does have some great little functions. Like it's got a HDMI connector on there, which replaces the serial port at the back. Now, the HDMI connector is connected directly to the digital video signal. So if you've seen... Um, Xbox RGB mods or even stuff on the GameCube, they tap directly into the signal. That's what this is doing. So it it gets a RGB display, really nice quality. But also, now that they've put this HDMI connector instead of the serial port, they don't have that option to use the serial port. So what they've done is they've added a Wi-Fi chip on there. So you're able to use extra functionality networking. But they've also added a mod chip on there as well. So this is like a little all-in-one kind of board. And it won't conflict with any stuff that you've got, like the uh, PSIO, the um, kind of SD SD card card loader. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, it's good that it does upscaling as well, because, I mean, that's kind of always the issue that you've got trying to connect classic systems to modern TVs. I mean, this will do um, upscaling up to 1080p for NTSC consoles, um, 578p for PAL consoles. You've got digital sound delivered over the HDMI as well, um, colour correction, gamma correction, custom colour mapping on here too. Like you said, it's got a mod chip on board as well, so rather than having to, you know, play around with all those dodgy old modifications and wiring on chips and wires and stuff everywhere. I think this looks like a really tidy way to kind of bring your old PlayStation a bit more in the 21st century. And is this this is going to be available for the public? Like, people are going to be able to buy this online and stuff? Yeah, yeah. I think it's in development yeah. at the moment. But yeah, they're going, going to put these out there. Yeah, oh, wow. So it looks like a really good all-in-one little addition to your PS. I mean, especially even trying to get a mod chip in there can be a bit of a headache. Yeah. Have you ever tried to mod a system? Uh, no, not myself, no, but I know Ravi's quite handy with it. I've always opened up. I've never modded myself, but I've always opened up old PlayStation 1s and I've looked inside and some of the mods, like people are literally put down tape or blue tack to hold it in place. It's absolutely crazy. And, and that, and that, I still work, you know. That's the kind of stuff I always kind of hear with, like, the, you know, the original PlayStation. It's always like these, like, oh, yeah, you blue tack this down, you tape this here, and you, you put a book on top of it while it's playing and stuff like that. <laughs> so it's interesting to see something coming, like, you know, which by the looks of things, you probably just kind of solder onto the board. And then it's going to do all these like magical things for us without us having to like play around with blue tack and sellotape and stuff. And because I guess that it's a it's a FPGA, so it'll be flashable. Um, you may be able to upload it because it says that this mod chip is built off the Open PSNE project. So maybe like you can flash it and add some more functionality in there, or as they upgrade it, have little updates for the actual board. Yeah, apparently the updates are going to be done over Wi-Fi, so yeah, you don't you don't have to open it up and oh, plug anything lovely. in. So uh, yeah, this. I mean, I've actually been playing my PlayStation One quite a bit again recently because I was before lockdown. I went to see the folks about a month ago for my dad's birthday, and um, back in my hometown, there's like still a couple of like gaming shops, and some of them actually have kind of turned into you know these retro gaming kind of well, it's retro games, vinyl, they do CDs, yeah. DVDs, one of those kind of shops, and I went in there and they had like literally a wall full of PlayStation 1 games. Recently, I've been on a bit of a, a PS1 collecting tip again. Mm. So I got London Racer 1 and 2, <laughs> and I hadn't played those for years. So, um, yeah, I've actually been uh, playing that quite a bit over the last couple of weeks. So I'm quite back into my PlayStation 1. I've got it permanently set up in my office at home again now. Do you reckon I'll have to um, make a little browser or something for it? Maybe maybe you could get, like, a PS1 Twitter client or something in the future. That'd be cool. <laughs> well, you know, if it's got this Wi-Fi chip in there, I imagine you could, you could probably build some interface where you connect to it from your PC, like, you know, through a web browser or something. Yeah. So, and dump your games on that would be awesome. So I do like seeing new hardware for classic systems. And it just seems like, like we said, then they're becoming tidier, more efficient, more affordable as well with every kind of new version of them that comes out. So definitely a welcome addition. Now, before we get into this week's special guest talking about companies like Cygnosis, Bullfrog EA, Grain Bells coming up in a moment, let's chat about Atari's new casino. Now, here's something I didn't think we'd see from Atari either. What is this, and is this like a virtual casino? Yeah, so we talked about Atari having their own cryptocurrency, which was Atari coin. Well, Atari token, actually, sorry. Uh, I don't think it can be called coin for some legal reason. But what they've done is they've opened an Atari casino, which is a a cryptocurrency-based casino that will be coming online, and you'll be able to play... Casino games, slots and, you know, live casino stuff, an Atari special as well. Now, 
I thought if they were going to do a casino, surely you'd have like arcade games on there, or you know, or um, they'd use like some of their IPs or something. Like even yeah. if it was slots, you know, when you see these like Indiana Jones slot machines and stuff like that, you would have thought they'd do something like I don't know. Like I can't even think of any sort of like classic Atari IPs right now. But like Missile Command, Missile Command, or ET, yeah. <laughs> something like that. Complete ET and win the jackpot. Yeah, yeah exactly. but, I, but I've seen like um, around the kind of whole of the internet, people have been slating this. You know, I've even got an article here on CNN which says uh, this cryptocurrency uh, casino is the latest terrible idea from Atari. <laughs> it's so what, after the hotels. It's so bizarre at the moment. They're like trying to put their fingers in so many pies and I just don't feel like they know what they want to do. Like Dan says, they want to be hotels, they want to be a casino, they want to release a new console. Like it just, just stick it, just do what you know how to do and just make games. Do you know what I mean? Well, I I think it's a bit of a ploy. So, you know, they've created this Atari token. A way to get this token to obviously get value would be to have it in use. So Mm. they use the brand name, it's a, open up a casino, have other tokens in there, and then slowly their value of the Atari token might rise. And is this is only online? It's not like there's no physical casinos. They're not going to be opening up in Vegas. Amazing. <laughs> 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 See that I would go to. Although I've only been to Vegas once, and I think I spent like a month's wages in a weekend. Oh god! So, um, Did you win anything, Dad? Uh, no, well, I, I don't know. Have you been to Vegas before? No. Well, generally what we found is when we went in any of the casinos, and I mean, I'm not a gambler normally anyway. I'm terrible at it. Um, but every everyone we went in, like an attractive lady had come over with a shot of alcohol for you on the house. And then obviously by the time you've had like, you know, five or six of them, you're getting a bit looser with your wallet. So um, it's not a bad ploy, actually, what they do out there in terms <laughs> of getting you drunk because then you spend more money. But yeah, after the end of the weekend, I was like, yeah, okay, that, that's my fix done. So um, yeah, I'm, I haven't gambled since. That was about 10 years ago. I think if uh, they open an Atari casino, I think it'd be the next retro hour trip <laughs> yeah. to Las Vegas. <laughs> See, that'd be, that'd be a business trip then. Yeah, that's 100%. Right. That's fine. So yeah, if you do want to find out more about the Atari casino, I mean, it's probably a good time to to launch something like that, I guess, with everyone being indoors at the moment. I mean, probably the only companies that are doing well out of everything is like internet companies at the moment. There, there is a loose connection between video games and uh, yeah. fruit machines and stuff like that. But I would have liked that to see if the, if they were going down the gambling route. I don't approve of it. But if you were use arcade games or something that's hundred uh, you percent, know, a bit more fun. Yeah, they're definitely missing Even a trick then, there. You know, you talk about like fruit machines and stuff. That's one thing I've never got on you know home computers and stuff when they bring out fruit machine simulators surely the fun of it is winning the money it's bizarre isn't it? why, why they existed <laughs> yeah who was playing them back in the day there were so many of them as well really weird so yeah if you do want to check out the atari casino uh, we'll put a link to that in our show notes at the retrohour.com now of course um we are doing the show remotely this week uh, but we have got a goal at the moment to try and get our own studio built obviously when all this is over and gets back to normal. We're going to be back in our normal studio for a while, of course, as long as we can. But, I mean, our long-term goal is to get our own retro-hour studio built. Now, we do appreciate that a lot of people at the moment, probably most people are, uh, you know, pulling the uh, the purse strings a little bit tighter than usual. But if you would like to help us out in our goal of getting our own retro-hour studio built so we can keep the show going into the future, all you have to do is join us on Patreon. Now, we've got a Patreon that's up and running, and thank you so much for your support over the last month or so. I mean... 
To be fair, we probably did launch our Patreon at the worst possible time. Yeah, probably in the hindsight. worst time in history um, to ever launch one. But um, we're, we're going to be able to get into this place. Dan's already got all the equipment. So when we yeah. talk about building a studio, I think it's more putting up a bit of walls and soundproofing. But um, yeah. what we're going to do is actually get in this place and then it's going to be a great base for us. You know, as soon as this stuff's kind of over, we'll be able to go in there, have it nice and clean, get down and do some good recording. Yeah, and obviously it's going to be our own place, so we can get in there all hours of the day. We can do extra content for you as well. And we're already coming up with ideas for doing video in there, live streams, lots of stuff as well. So when we've got our own place, it's just going to give you know a whole new dimension to this show. That At the moment, with our current studio, we're limited to like an hour or two a week. But having one that we can use pretty much any hour of the day is going to guts, open up so many new possibilities for us. So if you have helped us so far, um, we're trying to give as many shouts as we can each week uh, for our Patreon supporters. We want to say a huge thank you this week to Steve Engeldow, Henrik Laidfog, Stephen Quinn, Chris Riley, and Dirk Seigert, who all made donations into the running of the show and, of course, find their place on the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Thank you so much for your support. We've been putting a few little patron exclusives out as well. I mean, patrons recently have been getting the show a couple of days early. We released our uh, documentary that we made all about the importance of preserving video games. So um, if you're backers on our Patreon, you can check that out right now. We've been getting some nice feedback about that, actually. So uh, thank you so much for that, guys. Now, before we get into this week's guest, just time to do this week's retro picks. What I'm loving as well is the fact that a lot of companies at the moment are actually releasing little freebies, you know, so people can play. So obviously, you know, we're all at home right now. Maybe you've had a long day working on the laptop or you've been homeschooling the kids when they go to bed. You want to unwind a little bit. And to be fair, there's only so much Netflix you can watch in a week. So it's good to get some games out. And um, if you've got an Amiga, actually, the guys who were behind, do you remember that game Tanks Furry? We were big oh, fans yeah. of that, weren't yeah, we? Yeah, I love that game. Yeah, and they also did um, a follow-up game called Bridge Strike that I think we talked about. This is the guys behind their project R3D as well. Now, this was, um, it was a commercial game that they released, but while a lot of the world's in lockdown, they've decided to put that out completely free. So if you want to download it, it's kind of a modern version of River Raid, if you remember that game by Activision back in the day. It's got those same kind of pastel, really nice, tidy kind of high-res graphics that Tanks Furry had as well. So usually um, you'd have to pay around 11 euros, I think, to get it, but they're actually giving it away uh, to play completely for free and download on your Amiga, and I think it works with any Amiga as well. So if you want to check that out, I'll link that up in our show notes. What have you been checking out this week, Joe? Uh, so for me, mine was actually a, a video by a guy called... So he's a Redditor, so it's just on Reddit, Fred. Uh, a guy called Dax Martin... Uh, so he's a, an American guy who lives in Toronto, and I just absolutely love this. He's been playing retro games off a projector onto the side of an apartment building. So Dan will put it. So Dan will put it in the show notes. But essentially, what he's been doing is like he's been getting like a big thirty foot projection of Mario Kart on the side of like you know some apartment buildings, and he's literally just been playing it from his bedroom, and everybody's loving it. And apparently, he's on about doing a film on there and blasting it out with some speakers just while everybody's in lockdown, but he's been playing retro games every night at nine o'clock. He's been playing Bubble Bubble, Mario Kart. I absolutely love it. And I just thought, I'm so jealous that I can't do this. You know, when you're a kid and you're allowed to take your console down to the living room and play it on the big yeah, TV, it's it literally takes that to the next level. <laughs> yeah, it's literally the adult version of that. Yeah, I saw him playing Aladdin on it the other night as well on the uh, on the SNES. So yeah, he's been doing all sorts on there. But it's cool. I mean, even if you lived in the apartment building and the light was coming through your window, I wouldn't even be mad. No, apparently everybody's been really <laughs> on board with it and nobody's been upset yeah. about it. So that's why he's like, oh, I want to put some films on it as well. No, nah, we need feel good stories like that in these times, 100%. don't we? What about you, Ravi? 
Yeah, so this is a, an amazing thing that I spotted this week, and it's uh, by a senior lecturer at Swansea University called Reese Jones, and it's a teletext bot, but it's probably the slowest way you can possibly get teletext in the world. Um, it's, it's a bot on Twitter. Right. So what happens is you at the bot with the page of the teletext. You you at the bot with the number of the page that you want to actually get to. So like, you know, it goes from 400 to 599 for channel four. So I wanted to go to racing. I would at the teletext bot 470 and the teletext bot would then go onto teletext, take a little screenshot of it and then tweet me back amazing <laughs> so you get like a, a graphic of the actual page yeah so you can use teletext <laughs> via twitter now because I mean, some people might be thinking well teletext shut down years ago surely there is still services running isn't there oh yeah yeah there's uh, there's a free version of teletext that's out there at the moment and you know the fans have kind of taken over teletext once again probably not the quickest way to book your holiday though doing it this way <laughs> no. so that is a teletext bot on twitter you can check out all the retro picks and everything else we talked about this week you don't have to google them or anything like that I put them all in our show notes every week you can get them on your podcast client or just nip onto our website at theretrohour.com well hopefully this worked alright I think guys doing it from home I think I think we got through this first half of the episode I've got pictures of Dan and Joe up here so I can <laughs> <laughs> look at that's them that's a great idea them. actually it's got Joe's head sellotape to a pumpkin <laughs> <laughs> well listen thank you so much for checking out the news this week everybody um, I hope you're all staying safe and well we'll have more news for you on next Friday's show and right now let's get some stories about legendary companies Cygnosis Bullfrog EA Ravi is going to be chatting to legendary video game artist Graham Bell. You're listening to the Retro Hour and I'm here with Graham Bell, designer and video game artist. How are you doing, Graham? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for having me uh, on your podcast. It's great. I've been a long-term fan. It's good to actually um, be involved in one. Well, we've got a question that we always ask our guests first, and that was like, what was your first gaming experience? Oh, that's um, basically got to be in the 80s. I was very much a Spectrum guy. So my parents, actually, I think I had a ZX81 first to be uh, to begin with. And uh, I didn't have it very long. I don't know if maybe my parents realized that the Spectrum would just come out. But yeah, and I quickly got upgraded to a Spectrum 48K with all the rubber keys and everything. And yeah, that was my first foray into proper gaming, uh, really. Oh, I think we had a, you know, we had one of those kind of TV video systems as well. You know, if you remember, like the grandstand video systems, like, which were like, like a, a Biotone one or one of those. Yeah, they were like just the, 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 they, were, they were the size of a suitcase and weighed as much. And you know, they, yeah, they had like ten preloaded games, really. And uh, I think that was my very, very first one. I think that was possibly my very early in the eighties. But in terms of computing, it was definitely the Spectrum. And uh, yeah, I was. Full on in as as a Specky fan, and you know it's the same now. Like you were either a Spectrum guy or a Commodore sixty four guy, uh, and if you're really weird, you're an Amstrad guy. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was my first foray uh, into it, really. And you know, I was going through school at the time, and you, uh, yeah, I, we were lots of playground rivalry then. Yes, yeah, lot, yeah, definitely, yeah. I think my best mate at the time had had a Commodore sixty four. You know, a few other people, mate. Yeah, so yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely rivalry. In the playground, definitely. Yeah, it, it didn't it didn't spill over into anything else, but there was there was always competition. Well, and I've got this game, well, I've got that as well. Yeah. And, you know, and you know the Commodore guys would always hit you with the sound chip. Yeah, the sound chip on the Commodore sixty four was really good, and it, it was always the speech was that bit better. 
Uh, so they'd always hit you with the audio, basically. Um, you... Whereas the Spectrum was quite quite simple to play, and uh, the games are every bit as good, really. So, did you end up doing any kind of art on the Spectrum, or, or were you just like admiring stuff and playing games? I was just really a gamer. You know, I was a typical kid of my age, really. Probably a proper in-betweener, if I'm honest. Um, and yeah, so I was just into the games. And But also what I did like as well is I was very much into, I had all the magazines, I'd buy the magazines religiously or, well, uh, get my parents to buy them anyway. <laughs> and yeah, you'd go through the machine code in, you know, you used to have pages of the machine code you'd type out in basic and then you'd run it and it wouldn't work. And you just go, okay, back to playing, you know, jetpack or something um whereas perhaps uh, the more the, the the more programmer minded uh, would perhaps want to go in there and start playing with it to find out well, where did it go wrong and what happened but yeah that was um i was very much a game i didn't really do much art back then but i was very much into art anyway uh, at school and it was kind of that was really where i was starting to go towards as a potential thing that i wanted to do as a career, not that I thought about career back then, but it was something I was really interested in. I wanted to pursue a lot further. And what really inspired me was often some of the, the covers and the box artworks for the, um, well, not, not box art, but the, the cover disc artworks to the games. And also mm. in the magazines, you'd have these full page uh, adverts. And they were like, very uh, illustrative. Roger Keane was one of the artists. <laughs> yeah. The yeah Roger Keane. Yeah. Well. And uh, they, they had Foss a, look, a, few of the guys, a yeah. special look, didn't they? Each magazine as well. Yeah, yeah. So I was, I was very much into computer and video games uh, as a magazine. There was Your Sinclair, uh, Crash as well was the, the the Spectrum one, and the the other one was the Zap sixty four for the Commodores. But they all had kind of similar feel to some extent, and the, obviously their own individual brands. But yeah, it was the cover artworks I really got into, and I started keeping scrapbooks of it because as a person who wanted to go into illustration, and I was starting to learn more and more about it, I would see them as kind of an inspiration. And it wasn't really until a little bit later that I realised this guy called Bob Wakelin was like the guy, but you know, behind almost nearly everything that I that I saw at the time. Yeah, he was a massive inspiration to me, really. And I didn't really find because back then there was no internet. <laughs> you couldn't really just Google the guy because um, that, that whole concept didn't even exist. So it wasn't until I started studying a bit more and was doing a bit more research did I find out who this person was and that, that, that he was doing a lot of the artwork at the time for like Ocean and Imagine and a whole load of others. And so, yeah, he, he was a massive inspiration to me, really. Um, there are a lot of like crossover between album covers as well and, and <clears throat> video game covers. Were, were you into those as well with music culture at the time? Yeah, definitely. So I was, um, you know, I was very much into like electronic music. I've got quite a broad taste in music, really, but I was never really a diehard fan of of kind of like rock or anything like that. But I, I kind of liked what I but what I heard really. Uh, so I used to dabble in quite a lot, but I did have a really big interest in like those kind of ele- electronic music bands. So I was massive into the Pet Shop Boys, New Order, you know, um, OMD, you know, Erasure, all that kind of stuff. They had a certain sound I just liked. And certainly with um, bands like the Pet Shop Boys and New Order, when you bought an LP, you, you were almost, it felt like you were buying a piece of artwork. Yeah, you know, they were yeah. very well designed, you know, and they put a lot of effort into into that as well so yeah there was that was another kind of thing that kind of really 
inadvertently inspired me a little bit. And then you, you want to know more about it. You want to know how, how did they do that? How did they do that effect? How did they, how did they even do that cover? How did they design that? And then that was when that kind of just spurred my interest even more really. But uh, yeah, there's, again, there was, there was a little bit of a crossover, I think, as, as you get further into the eighties, the design was getting stronger and stronger, basically. Why do you think like such extravagant art box covers were needed at the time? Um, I, th- I think really what it was is that if you depended on the graphics and the game, that you couldn't really use them. You know, they were never going to be print quality. I think also you needed something aspirational that you know you needed to kind of it needed to pop off the shelf as well because back then I mean it's hard to always keep saying back then, of course, because uh, it was quite some time ago now, but you'd walk into a store like WH Smith's and the game section was just huge. There was just so many titles. So you're fighting for space on the shelf and um, you might have a license to help you like Batman or anything like that, but you but you still need to compete along with everybody else. So you, your, your cover had to really kind of jump off the shelf at you. And it also had to kind of suck you in and say, well, look, this is... You're going to play a game of action, and you know, and you're going to be beating people up or flying jets or things like that. So it had to really kind of look quite enticing, and and even to the more more boring stuff, um, you know, I think, uh, and of course, the more interest in the game, then that kind of allowed the illustrator to kind of put more effort into it because the graphics and the games, as good as they were at the time they just wouldn't have really been aspirational enough. It's almost like a movie poster. A movie poster doesn't really take a frame from the movie. They generate a piece of artwork which suddenly appeals to you and go, wow, that looks that looks amazing. What is that? You know, and it might have your favourite actor in it or your favourite director making it. But it's got to it's got to draw you in, uh, essentially. It's, it's, it's very similar to any kind of like um, food labelling or anything like that. There's There's probably a whole research around this on certain colors appeal to certain people and so on and that's that's kind of really what it's about i think interestingly it's uh none of it's digital is it back then it was all all hand drawn or it's done airbrushed um you know it's a very kind of a traditional process for creating the art oh yeah yeah um watercolor gouache uh, with airbrush as well yeah i mean you could would you class that as old school now? But uh, <laughs> maybe but, yeah, drawn or illustrated. Yeah, drawn, you know? yeah. But no, no, yeah. You literally go from you'd almost start with a white, uh, a blank piece of paper. And I, I remember hearing Bob talk on I think one of your podcasts actually, or most interviews where he'd, he'd often he wouldn't go through almost like an approval process. He would literally just go from a few sketches to the artwork and then go. That was it. It's done. You know. And uh, so yeah, and that was again something that I was starting to get a bit more involved in when I eventually uh, finished school and went to further my education a lot more and I wanted to kind of learn a lot more of these techniques and then eventually I I trained up as a more traditional uh, airbrush illustrator. That's interesting because we talked earlier and actually you jumped from 8-bit to like 32-bit you totally missed yeah I know whole 16-bit period so yeah yeah, uh, I guess it were you I guess, like illustrating and doing other stuff during that period then? Yeah, so I guess I I mean I finished school in uh, 88 uh first first people to to do GCSEs. I went on to college in a group in Peterborough, Cambridgeshire. So I went to college in Wisbeach, Cambridgeshire, which was about 30 miles away I think it is, because they had these really good art and design courses which just weren't available at my nearest college. Um 
so yeah, and you, you're just too busy. I mean, it would have been great to continue the gaming, but really the coursework was intense and there was just no time. You know, I was doing long days on again on the bus going to, to, to college. And then eventually I went to Falmouth as well to, to further, to, to go the next level up. Um, and then it got to about 93 and that's when I finished and then went into the world of work as a freelancer. So, so yeah, I completely missed that whole generation, the whole Amiga, Mega Drive type stuff, which kind of was a shame, really, because I think if I if I had been, I would have been literally playing games all day, every day, really. Yeah, probably so, not got that much work yeah, done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's interesting about the jump because that was when when I first started getting involved with PlayStation, mm. and I first started kind of understanding that some the the marketing around it and the strategy. You know, I remember them saying it's like, no, they were targeting very much people of my age group who had gone through university and so on. And well, you you had gone from university and you were yeah. uh, working on travel guides, and there was a guy downstairs doing some really cool stuff for Ministry of Sound. How did that kind of lead you into the advertising world? Yeah, so it's a kind of so usually um, so at Falmouth they were very good at reaching out to industry in trying to get like live commissions for students to work on. And the idea was that <clears throat> it was all probably done as a business entity. And the idea was that students would have kind of proper commissioned artwork in their folio when they left. And that would give them hopefully a little bit more advantage going into the workplace. And there was a studio in outer Southeast London borders in Bromley. And there was an ex student there of Falmouth. And he, he had a business with a, a, his partner. They had a contract to do travel guides. And it was a certain style of illustration. And they had more work than they could handle. So they went to Falmouth and said, look, have you got anybody who fits this style? Um, we'd really be keen to talk to them because we've got a whole lot of work here. And then that's kind of how it started. So I, I just got a phone number and a name. And then I phoned it up. And then Next thing I know, I've got my first commissioned work, which was for um, Alcatraz Island in San Francisco, uh, for the San Francisco (laughs) uh, travel guide. Yeah. So I got packed through the post and I was working at home at the time. And then literally within a few months, I was at the studio in Bromley uh, working there pretty much like on site. And it was where I kind of cut my teeth commercially. So the the guys there they were they were in a pretty good studio. There was there was there was initially just two guys there, but eventually they split their business up, and so there was just one of the founding members. I stayed on with him to do all this kind of work and everything, and we were turning over quite a bit of work. There was loads of travel guide stuff. There was Dorling Kinsley was the uh, the publisher, which and they had a, a reputation for quality uh, and a very illustrative style in their books. So um, you know we did a San Francisco. Oh man, there was Loire Valley, I think, oh, Venice and the Veneto. Um, there was uh, there were too many I can even remember, really. It, it, it was just constant. And then we, we worked in this kind of office, this small office block, which was like this run down business enterprise scheme offices. So it was cheap rent. So it was ice cold in the winter and like a <laughs> sauna in, in, the, in, in the summer. And, um, there was a guy downstairs. The funny story how we, how we kind of all met was we just hear the door slam and then he would go downstairs and then you hear this really loud music and it would just thump through <laughs> through the floor. And so, of course, we're sitting there trying to work and, just go, and in the end, you're just going, oh, I can't stand it anymore. I'm just going to have to go down and talk to this guy. And we got to the point where we didn't really want to create a fuss, but it was just like, I'm, I'm going to kill that guy. I'm going to go downstairs and kill him. And we opened the door and literally just, you know, this guy was standing in front of us and it, and he just had all this paint splattered on the wall and everything. And it was just like, 
what the hell are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so he goes, I, and he goes, oh, the music's just too damn loud, guys. I, we, we can't hear ourselves think. So then we kind of chatted a bit and kind of put the shotguns down and <laughs> decided to talk to each other. And then um, we got talking to him and he said, I oh, know I'm doing, I'm doing um, these interior designs for nightclubs. And he's like, oh, wow, cool. You know, what are you guys doing? Oh, we're doing this artwork for, uh, for advertising and publishing and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, oh, wow. You know, and he said, oh, I use more, I use computers. And I said, what, what do you do? And he said, well, I do, I do it on 3D and this 3D software. And he, he had an Apple Macintosh computer and he showed us uh, a package called Infinity D, which probably won't mean anything to you, but to an artist in my age, they'll go, oh my God, Infinity D. And um, it was like, he'd shown us fire for the first time. It was, um, we were used to airbrushing Chrome spheres and letters. And he said, oh, I could just do a letter, do a font, ray trace it. And look, I've got it reflective. It's like, oh my God, this is, this is amazing. And um, so, yeah. And then over time, we quickly all started to collaborate together. You know, we kind of consolidated our businesses a little bit. And then uh, the business owner was very good at selling the work. So we put together some sample pieces and then, he went out into in, into the world and started to try and sell this work, and then it the work just came in like crazy. It was it was huge. There was so much of it because we could do it so quickly, and it was a whole much more flexible than just trying to do it by airbrush and paint, really. So um, that kind of sixteen bit period that you'd missed was like <clears throat> the three D rendering, but incredibly slowly. So <laughs> you <laughs> you probably just came and like saw this three D object get rendered there on the spot in real time and yeah it must have been mind-blowing it was the it was the software was getting better all the time it was moving so so quickly and at that time we're now into kind of early to mid 90s now so we're getting into like 94 95 everything was moving so quickly in terms of like the creative industries across the board both musically in terms of design and people were the, the software was getting better the computers were getting faster um, as they were, the memory was getting more. Although it's you know you, your your phone has probably got more memory than we had back then, but to us it was it was a real big deal. So we started doing more and more work, and uh, we started to find that clients were coming forward with this, and it had a new fresh look. Uh, and we started to notice there was a few design agencies as well that were starting to explore this as well. So we think. So it's like, okay, we're onto something now. And then that was when something called the PlayStation came along. <laughs> when did you first like hear about the PlayStation and how did, how did you get your hands on one? So we started doing, um, we managed to uh, get in, into, I think it was Future Publishing or one of the, the magazine publishers who used to publish multiple games magazines. Probably Future, and, yeah, they were the yeah. yeah. And we started to get um, commissions for, for doing magazine covers um of games and this was like because the saturn had come out first and i think uh, there's a lot of people who don't often realize that that, <clears throat> that they'd asked us to start doing these magazine covers because as with the box artwork they couldn't really use the the the, the graphics from the game to do uh, um, a magazine cover so we started doing some some stuff around that and then that had caught the eye of a company called the attic design company and they contacted us and said look we've really seen your work I mean, we were doing advertising for everybody. All the main agencies, JWT, Ogilvy & Mather, um, Grey Advertising, all, all, all the big names, Sarchies. And, and was that 
due to the resolution not being that good and if they would do screenshots of the games they would still look awful you'd have to, yeah to, yeah they to wouldn't scale up, up you'd have to do a great render yeah we'd have to we were doing artwork at 300 dpi time in photoshop and also photoshop as well interesting photoshop had just gone to version three <laughs> still <laughs> on floppy disk probably yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah and also version three introduced layers for the first time wow. which you talk to people now i talk to people i work with, and they're going like you mean they've never known a photoshop without layers <laughs> and it's like kind of like it's like now i'm feeling a bit old but um so yeah so that that, that changed things as well so the, there's a good example of how the software and technology was starting to offer a lot more opportunity than it used to uh, before so the capability was like i can now do this and now as i can now do this i can now do this as well so the the attic had had contacted us the guy that said look we've seen your work and we've spoken to these guys and your your name's come up and really like your look and we, we've we've got a really good design look, but we don't have much 3D competency. So we're wondering if we could get you guys involved. And it's like, okay, fine. What's the job? Is it you know? Is it an avatar? And he said, well, we, we've landed a contract with Sony for their new games console, the PlayStation. And we said, oh yeah, we kind of heard of that. Don't know much about it. And <laughs> he said, well, look, it's Friday now. I'm I'm down your way. I tell you what, let me come by the studio, and um. Let's have a chat about it, and I'll show you what I'm talking about. So, the guy turned up on a, on a, I think a Friday, and he, he he bought in this case and opened it up, and there was there was a PlayStation, and it was all in Japanese. It wasn't even a um, a European uh, version. And we plugged it into the TV, and the first game on it was Ridge Racer. Oh, sweet! <laughs> and, yeah. and that was it. That was it. It was like watching. Think, my God, this is amazing. This is. This is really, really cool. And also what we <clears throat> what I liked about it was that it wasn't black. It was like grey. And it felt it had a certain quality to it as well. When you picked it up, it felt like you got something in your hand. And um and that, that was a stark difference to the Saturn, which was like a you know, a typical black shiny box, um, really. So they were very much a stark contrast. And they always and seemed you- to get it right, didn't they, Sony, with the feel of Stuff yeah, like the Discman and the Walkman before, and you know. Yeah, I think that was the key to it, really, because um, so so the guy showed us this game. We, that's what we were playing it, and he's going, "What are you saying? No, I'm, I'm too busy." And it's like we're just playing and playing it. And he goes, "Okay, guys," um, and we had a few chats about what Miami's, and they'd got the contract to do, I think, all of the point of sale material and many of the launch material for the for the PlayStation and, and early titles. And he said, I'll tell you what, guys, I'll leave it with you for the weekend. And I'll pick <laughs> it up. That, 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 that was it. We, we, I don't think we ate or slept the entire weekend and just thought this thing's going to be huge. Uh, so then uh, the guy came came back to pick it up and he said, look, what, why don't you guys come into Sony with me? I'm going there in, in, um, later in the week. You know, they're, they're doing a briefing. Uh, it'd be really good if you guys came and, and, and had a look and, you know, listen to what I had to say. So we, we went up there and um, that was when I first saw the uh, dinosaur demo oh, wow. as well. Were there, were there like, other people there as well? Like yeah, there was, a whole, there was a mixed room of people. So there was various advertising, marketing people. Uh, and that was when um, I first saw Jeff Glendon in as well, who was one of the marketing guys for Sony, one of the key guys. And then they started talking about their strategy and it's like, Again, and it started to resonate with me quite a lot because it's like, it's me. You're targeting someone like me. And they were talking about the club culture they were looking to tap into. Um, they showed us some stuff of like Wipeout 
and some of the design of Republic covers that they were doing as well. And I'm thinking, wow, this is this is a very different feel to a traditional games um, market and games console. And I remember them saying that, you know, well, we're targeting that slightly older demographic. We'll always get the kids. You know, the kids almost come by default. But now if we target this group here, which is really a certain age, have been through education, have gone into the into the workplace and have maybe got some expendable income, you know, they're out clubbing and so on. And they were looking to do this real crossover. And, you know, you can read up about this. It's not, it's not, I'm not necessarily giving away anything secret, but so they really, they really hit the target big time with that. Did you think that it was kind of a bit of a risky move for them to actually go into clubbing culture and stuff? Because the reputation wasn't amazingly, you know, uh, family friendly back then. (laughs) No, no, it wasn't. Um, Yeah, it was, it, yeah, there was, you know, and there was a, obviously a, an undertone of drugs as well. Yeah. Um, but I think they were trying to kind of, they were, it felt like to me, they were trying to capitalize on very much the moment. And because you're talking now into like 95, right in the middle of the decade. So you had this kind of Brit pop thing that was building as well. You know, and, and there'd been a, there'd already been a recession a few years earlier as well, I think, and it was starting to come out of that a little bit more now. So, you know, there was a little bit more of a buzz in the air. You know, there's all these new bands coming up like Blur and Oasis as well, you know, and, and a whole lot of others. And there was a new sound coming. I think they were really trying to capitalise on that. That was kind of what I felt anyway. So, yeah, it was a, it was a gamble, but I think as well, Sony kind of really had a lot going for them. They were, they understood electronic hardware. Definitely. They understood the consumer uh, and they understood the, how to make hardware. So I think, and, and that was when they, I first was introduced to the idea of Psygnosis as well, because they obviously spoke about that they, um, they own Psygnosis and it was a European game developer and that allowed them to kind of tap into that market a little bit more as well. And the quality was looking really good. And also that, reflected in the titles as well it wasn't a traditional games art cover it was like there's there's some real serious design behind it and again it had a look about it which resonated with people as well i mean you're into the realms of like the prodigy as well so yeah i think there's a lot happening around that time both in the music industry and sony understood the music industry because they own labels um so i think that was where they were trying to tap into that expertise in order to launch this new product how important were like shops and retail displays back then? And did you get involved uh, creating retail displays? Yeah. So after that meeting, that was when the, the work started coming. Yeah. And, and again, it was, you know, with any launch of a new hardware, you, you need games to play. So there was a whole range of titles being prepared. And again, the Saturn was already out there. So, you know, Sony were coming late to the market a little bit as well. Plus also the, the, the um, PC games were gaining momentum as well. Their, their boxes were bigger. So again, you had to really think about where your position was going to be in the store and then all the point of sale and the flyers and all the marketing materials and posters that came with it. So again, it was like just launching any kind of product. And and I think it was really important. I think and that it was that's why agencies like the Attic were brought on board because they understood that all the things you need, you, you don't just do a box artwork and that's it. You need a poster, you need a, a campaign and you build materials around that campaign. Uh, and that was, you know, uh, point of sale material, there's posters, all the magazines as well, wanted their own posters. And you could do, 
different posters with different outlets and different markets so that people had a sense of like they were seeing something new for the first time. Um, so, yeah, I think it's incredibly important. And, and I think it, that continued for pretty much most of the lifespan of, of the PlayStation. What kind of led to you wanting to uh, change your career and focus on maybe a games company? That's a really good question. So we were doing very well. The game stuff had started off pretty well, but had plateaued a bit really after the launch of the PlayStation. We had a constant feed of work, but at the same time, I didn't wasn't seeing much of the money in my pocket. And I think it came to a point where perhaps all of us face this crossroads throughout our careers. Maybe and go, well, do I want to stay here? Do I want to move on? What, what, what do I want to do? I was thinking about maybe that the games are something I really wanted to get into, and it seemed to be the natural progression for me. And again, software was getting better. The quality was getting better. Also, not only in games, but also film visual effects as well. You know, in the mid-90s, you were seeing a big burst of quality in terms of CGI characters in films like Jurassic Park and Jumanji and so on. So, so there was, I thought to myself, hang on, there, there's, there's, there's something going on here and we're, we're not quite there yet. So I'm going to have to either leave to, to get into this or hopefully stay and then see what, what develops. And I, I thought I'm, I'm maybe just to look at the market and see what's there. And I remember looking at Edge magazine and Edge magazine back then just had pages and pages of job ads for games companies. And I came across a two-page advert for Psygnosis, which had a two-page sp- spread of uh, Wipeout. And they were looking for artists for um, their London studio, not necessarily uh, 3D artists. They were looking for artists of anybody, you know, any kind of design people, illustration people. So I thought, well, you know, I'll give it a go. And I submitted an application and the next minute I've, I've got an interview. And I can remember walking into the interview in Knoll Street in um, Soho. And I walked into the room. And on the room is probably about four or five of my posters <laughs> that I'd done for Sony. And I remember turning to the guy and said, oh, you've got my poster on He goes, that's why you're here. <laughs> that's, no no you need know, to bring your CV. Just yeah, yeah so it's almost kind of like, okay, well, that's, I, I can only take that as a positive. Um, but of course, I still had to ace the interview. But uh, And then eventually, yeah, they, they offered me a job. And yeah, I joined um, the Signosis Camden studio in 96, you know, not long after Euro 96. So a lot, of, a lot of listeners will probably be thinking that Signosis was just based in Liverpool, but um, it was split into three studios, right? Three, four, maybe five, actually. So they had, wow. um, Liverpool was the mothership, of course. That Signosis London initial, it was, yeah, they, 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 they were, in, were in Camden, but then they set up a second London studio in Hangar Lane off to the west. Then they had Psygnosis Stroud and then there was Leeds as well. And then I think there was a Paris studio. So they had quite a few studios. But of course Liverpool would take would would had a lot of the attention because that's where um, Wipeout was made, for example. You know, and but also other titles they did as well, like Formula One and Destruction Derby, they were they were done externally. They were just a publisher. So I think um Destruction Derby was done by uh, Reflections, yeah. and uh, F1 done by Bizarre Creations. Well, they were they were pushing out a lot of titles at the time. Um, oh yeah, and insane! Man. <laughs> very good in the early years. I remember uh, one of my favourites <clears throat> was uh, Overboard. Um, oh yeah, great game. Yeah, that was a that was done by. I apologise if I got this wrong to anybody out there, but I'm pretty sure that was a Psygnosis Stroud game. Because uh, they did G Police as well. I think it was called Shipwrecked in America or something. That Possibly, was like yeah. A, a two title thing, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So yes, um, 
so that was done at um, Stroud, and that was a great little game. That really was. And I won't say a little game, but yeah, it was. It was just fun to play, and yeah. it, it looked good. And it had. It was very. It had a kind of very Nintendo feel to it. Essentially, you know, a proper old school game. Uh, um, but yeah, it was a, a great time. And the quality, the quality was great as well. And you know, they they did. And then of course, um, the thing that Cygnosis were really known for was their FMV. Uh, so yeah, uh, unfortunately, in London, our titles were not quite as good as that. If <laughs> you know, if I have to be honest, at the time, I mean, I thought they were amazing because it was my first experience of working in games, and that's why where I I cut my teeth. But you know, the the quality perhaps wasn't the same as as, as those titles, to be honest with you. But it was still a, an experience for me, and I and I learned an awful lot from working in that studio. Well, what kind of stuff were you working on? So the first game that I worked on was assigned to was a PC game actually called Zombieville. And if no one's ever heard of it, then that's fine because <laughs> it, was, it was probably deliberate. It was it was a zombie-based game with a whole kind of um, supernatural kind of narrative behind it, uh, set on like an army base. Greg Proops, the American comedian, did the voiceover for the character. So, I, you know, they must have spent a fair bit on him. And it was very much a kind of pre-rendered backgrounds with sprites put on top, very kind of similar to Resident Evil, but unfortunately it wasn't as good as quality as <laughs> Resident Evil was at the time. So that was my first game I, I worked on where I did some of the, the backgrounds. Or I helped some of the, the artists do some of the backgrounds, but I mainly did some of the front end design to it. And I did a whole box artwork designed for that, but that didn't get used in the end. But I did pretty much the game logo, in-game logo, all those kind of graphics as well. And then I think after that, I think after I did a few spells, they were doing a space shoot, shoot 'em up called Blast Radius. But unfortunately, that was at the same time as Colony Wars was being done. <laughs> so that obviously got most of the marketing budget, unfortunately. And, and you know, and it, and, it, and it is a great game. And then they were doing another game as well called it was it was called Bad Custard, but it eventually got called Kingsley's Adventures, I think, for the PlayStation One. So it's very much like a um, third person character game, a bit like Croc. Uh, by Argonaut because um, there was quite a few of those games you had Spyro of course at the time Crash Bandicoot all those type of 3D platformers there was quite a lot of them at the time they all had like a little kind of kids uh, character essentially in 3D so I think that eventually came out after I left but, um, but yeah I think that was all they were doing at the Camden studio and then at Hangar Lane they had a whole array of titles that they were trying to do and they were dual skew so they were both PlayStation 1 and PC but I don't think any of them ever got um, completed in the end. They, they were all eventually canned. Yeah, because um, uh, I remember you mentioning some Games Workshop titles as well. Cause yeah, uh, Blood there Bowl. so um, many Games Workshop titles in yeah. the early PlayStation. I mean, there was like two rival studios going at the same time or something. Yeah, so I think they'd, they'd secured a license to Blood Bowl, which uh, was a like a 3D... Um, Orc one, wasn't it? it was yeah, Orc, three, yeah, 3D... Uh, American football rugby type game. Uh, and again, they built loads of levels. They even did some initial FMV and it was looking really, really good. Uh, I think there might've been another one they were doing as well, but I can't remember the name of it. So, but yeah, but it, again, it, it never saw the light of day. It was a real shame, um, you know, because the you know, the company changed quite, quite a bit after that, really. You know, it's really weird because I thought Cygnosis was one of the companies that kind of survived the 16-bit period and then went into the 32-bit period, and uh, we're doing really well. So what happened, and how did the F1 license kind of start to ruin the flow of work and the the spots? Yeah, so when I joined in 96, they went into, I think, that Christmas, and they launched Formula One. 
for the PlayStation, which was a massive success for them. You know, and it's a great game. And I think they launched it when, if my memory serves, being an F1 fan, I've got to get this right. I think it was when Damon Hill won the world championship. Wow. So, of course, like it was a perfect marketing thing, really. I mean, you launch a game at the same time he's doing that. It was a license to print money. Uh, and it was a very good F1 game. I think it was the first ones on, on, on the PlayStation. And, of course, actually, you then had sequels to Wipeout. And Wipeout 2097 is still, I think, one of the best PlayStation games oh, yeah. there is out there. It's just, uh, you know, how could you make a better game even better, really. Uh, and they had more... a PC port of that as well. So. <laughs> yes, they did. Yeah, they're yeah. a little bit more forgiving on the, on the steering <laughs> controls. Um, thank God. But uh, an incredible title, really. Um, and I think uh, unrivaled, I think, to be honest. But yeah, so then, and then it was going into, I think, 97, Christmas 97, and Signosis had really built up this huge catalogue of titles. Uh, and there was a real kind of thing in the air. They were, they were pushing quite aggressively, I think. Um, so that's when you had... Colony Wars, G Police, F197. And I can remember Ian Hesington saying in an interview that G Police was going to be like Christmas number one. And and it, it looked great as well. It looked really um, incredibly impressive title. And I think doesn't often get the, the uh, admiration I think it, it deserves because I, I love that game. And then I think if I, can, if I can recall, when it went into Christmas, they had a problem with the um, the license for F197 and so much so that they had to pull it off the shelf, um, which of course is like, Oh, just the worst thing ever, really. I think it was something to do with the logo or the artwork and said, well, you don't have the license to do this. So, it, and it was only maybe about a month after release. So then, and then it got re-released after that. And even then they were still unhappy. And I think also there was another issue with Jacques Villeneuve, the driver, had a different arrangement with the FIA or whoever it was. So he, he wasn't called that name in the game. I think he was called like driver number one or something. Williams number one, I think it was at the time. And again, it was just like beset with, with problems. But I think as a result of that, because they had to pull the game off the shelf, that's when you're not selling the title. And of course, you're losing so much money. And then it just seemed after that, that I think as an observer, for me, it felt like that they then adjusted all the release um, dates for all the other games and brought them all forward. And then I think then by the time they got to Christmas, they, they didn't really have a title in the top 10, or if it was, it wasn't even t- top five. And so I think that was really, so all these grand plans they had just unraveled, really. Like a chain reaction. Kind of. Yeah, and it was a real shame. And it was kind of like, oh, man. And I think later on, and then into the new year, into what would be 98, that was when the first signs started to happen where they were starting to trim off some people while making them redundant. And then eventually I got to maybe about, May or June time, and then that was when you know I was I was um, brought into an office and said, "I'm sorry, Graham, but we're having to, we're going to have to make you redundant with these other people as well." Um, you know, and that was kind of I think the that was the first step of what really what was going to be the the great culling of Signosis, really, because after I left, they then started closing entire studios. They closed off Hangar Lane completely, literally shut the whole thing, put a padlock on the doors, and then had to allow people in to, to actually get their own belongings. So yeah, I think all those kind of plans really started to cause um, the, the company to kind of unravel or l- really have a look at their expenditure because they were probably so stacked full of titles, but they weren't bringing in the revenue. I I heard just before you left though, you went to a huge party in Liverpool and kind of saw the Liverpool office for the first time. Uh, what was that like? Yeah, that's I think that was um, so. Again, if history serves me well. Um, Signosis was set up initially by, I think, by two 
two guys initially at, at um, Ian Heffington and I think Jonathan Ellis, I think his name was. And I think John was leaving and he was one of the main guys. And it's like, we're, so, and uh, and he'd sort of said, look, I've, I've done my time. I'm, I'm, I, you guys are great. So they had a massive party for him. So they, they then coached a lot of us up to, to Liverpool to give him a send off really. Uh, and then it was like, so they had at the office and, you know, they had, had the party elsewhere, but you, that's when I saw that the waiver tree uh, building for the first time. And it's like, it, it, it was huge. It was massive compared to what we had at, uh, at London. You just thought, wow, this is why they're doing all these great games. It was called the tell me how many people they've got and all the QA people up there as well. You know, and you had people like the artists like Lee Karras and, Jim Bowers as well up there, who were like some of the guys doing uh, Neil Thompson, who was on like, kind of on um, Wipeout and Crazy Ivan and all this kind of stuff. So these guys were seen as like, wow, these guys are really cool. But um, but yeah, so there was a and they had all the F one stuff there as well. So I think they Signosis had done a deal with Jordan F one team at the time to help them out with the, the marketing as well. So they were all there as well. So yeah, a good time was had by all, shall we say. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it was it was good to it was good that they were putting it on to it uh, on for him really because you know he'd been one of the kind of founding guys and you know that you know and you know he'd obviously helped get the company to where it was really. So I think it was it was a good send off. You moved from one legendary company to another. So um you went to EA and Bullfrog? Yeah, so when I um when I got laid off by um Cygnosis, I was thinking about do I try and get into visual effects into film uh, or do I maybe have a go at games and I nearly made it into visual effects at the time I missed out on on opportunities by, by literally a few weeks but I'd already gone through some of the recruitment agencies and they, they'd lined me up some interviews um, at Guildford you know and I went through two agencies and one was going for Bullfrog and one was going for EA I didn't know at the time that they occupied the same building <laughs> so I I went to um, the Bullfrog interview came up first. And I was there for hours and I was being interviewed by two teams, which, which again, I, did, I didn't quite realise at the time. And then eventually the job offer came through and it was like, I'm a bit confused here. So I had to kind of really smooth things over with one agency uh, as opposed to the other. And the other agency were very nice about it. They said, no, it's fine. You know, it said, also, as far as we're concerned, you're working in the place we would have put you in anyway. So that was re- really nice of them really to miss out on that commission. Um, <laughs> but yeah, with Bullfrog, it was, I, I came in in, this was, this would be 98 now so just after Molyneux uh, had left really and um Dungeon Keeper 2 was the the game I was hired on for so I was brought on to um start looking at the graphic design for that around some of the um some of the icons that for, for the game maybe some of the initial marketing materials as well and also some of the um front end and user interface type stuff as well because I think they had, had an artist working on it but I think I was brought in just to kind of supply some new ideas or maybe a new uh, a new take on it and that was when really I started doing all that kind of um, FMV work as well because the they'd hired a French company to do all the FMV work but they'd pretty much blown the budget <laughs> on or most of their budget doing that infamous uh, interview with the Reaper cut and they'd used pretty much most of their budget on that and it's like well you signed up for this guys uh, we want we want all the other FMV so they begrudgingly did most of it but some of it I had to finish off myself and it was all done in Soft Image the, the 3D package which I'd learned that at um, Cygnosis because that was the, the the one package they used so of course that that went well we've got a guy here who fits the slots that we need and also he knows the software as well so we'll get him in uh, and then what I didn't know at the time is that I was also being lined up to work on a football game 
uh, EA, uh, which was going to be a, a FIFA spin-off, but for the Premiership. And that was using the FIFA pipeline, which is all based in soft image as well. And also, he'd done a lot of motion capture, and I'd done a, a little bit of that at, at Cygnosis as well, which really made me an expert compared to the rest of the of um, EA and Bullfog at the time, we didn't really know anything about it. So, you know, even just a little bit of knowledge was 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 deemed enough, really. But for DK2, I stayed there for a good few months on that, on that game, got the kind of design turned around a little bit for the front end and the user interface, and then I, then I did all the box artwork. For, so the, that infamous box artwork with the, the white cover with the Reaper and the Mistress standing back to back is was all mine. Well, that building as well, it sounds absolutely crazy because... Not only did you have EA yeah, in Bullfrog, you had Mindscape downstairs and you were hanging with guys in the company like Sean Cooper and, you know, legendary game designers. Yeah, so there was, um, again, I didn't I, again, I, I didn't notice at the time, but um, Mindscape had come on board a, a while back, I think, or been acquired and they'd done Warhammer Dark Omen, I think, before. Um, and that, that had been published by EA. That was actually another box of work I think I'd been involved with as well, or, or my studio had done before. Because I can remember coming across a guy when he found out I did I I'd done box artworks for games. He said, "Did you do uh, Warhammer Dark Omen?" It's like uh, I might have done, <laughs> and it's just like, "Yeah, we, we we did a design for that, and it got turned down in favour of yours." It was like, "Okay, <laughs> um, sorry," <laughs> um, and it's just like, "I know it's fine," but it, it, they really had kind of thought that their design was better. And I said, "Well, look, I, I didn't know anything. I just got told to do a job, and you know, I just did it." So, but I think it was an interesting that that's what can ha- that happen a lot in games where developers would invest so much of their time on a title that they wanted to do everything for it. They want to do all the marketing, all the the box artwork, all the point of sale stuff. And sometimes it was perhaps better that they weren't involved because they just didn't have that different hat on for, from a marketing point of view. But that aside, though, they, they, I think the, those guys were doing Theme Park World. And I think guys like uh, Glenn Corpse are still there. I think he was working on – oh, they were wrapping up on Populous 3, I think, at the time. Uh, the beginning so they were just wrapping up on that and then you know guys like uh, Glenn was still there and he was doing Indestructibles at the time or that that kind of uh, early um, demo for it as well because they had another little splinter team which was doing some uh, some early design stuff but there was still quite a few of the I would say original bullfroggers but still quite a few of the, the kind of familiar names around really and then you know gradually over time I think when after Peter left some people left to set up Mucky Foot. Uh, some guys left, uh, the Carters left to set up uh, Big Blue Box. Uh, and they took a few people with them. And then uh, Glenn and some other guys left to set up um, Lost Toys as well. So there was a, a slow, gradual exodus, really, of people. All these little studios getting set up. And of course, uh, Molyneux had his own studio as well. I can't remember. Yes. Two Cans, was it? Or no, that's the new uh, one. And no, that would be uh, that would be uh, was it Lionhead? Was I don't know if it had a name. Yeah. It was it. I don't even know I had it a name at the time. But um, so yeah, I think that was and it was an interesting time because I never got to work with Peter directly, but he always kind of there were people there, and I always wondered what it was like. And it, there's all this thing where he didn't work on every single game because often he would put his attention into one thing and one thing only, and that would issue consume everything around him. But one, I think one of the person, I was, one guy I was talking to at the time. He summed it up very well, and he said one thing was Peter was very good at is that they'd hired some good people, and there was some brilliant people there. There's absolutely no denying that. So he would often leave them to it to do stuff because I don't think I, I'm pretty sure he didn't necessarily have direct involvement in some of the games like Magic Carpet uh, or High Octane. But what he would do is he'd leave them to do it, and often his knack was that whenever they were stuck on a design or were stuck on a problem, 
you know, he would kind of come into the room and then look at it from a different point of view and then kind of, oh, have you considered this or what about this or what about that? And then that would kind of spark things off again. And then that he would exit the door and leave him to it again. So he was very good at looking at it from a different point of view and offer his kind of guidance and expertise. And then that would that would kind of unlock the jam that the guys had got themselves into. And then they were, they were able to continue again. And that was, I heard that from quite a few people. Like, having not worked directly with him, I could be completely wrong on that. But, but I think that's um, a, a very common thread. Were there any like later titles developed by Bullfrog or any unreleased major titles that were planned and then got canned at the end? Yeah, so I think there was a few. There, I think after, because um, I think when not long after I joined, they consolidated a few of the um, the theme parks. So I think they were doing theme prison or theme aquarium or theme. There was another theme one, and I think they just said, "Look, this it's just get to theme park world, essentially, and then build off that." Indestructibles was the, the the one of the big things that they were working on, uh, and they'd done a lot of work for that as well. You know, there was an there was a rolling demo um, that was kind of playable, and there's some interesting dynamics as well. So I think it was a, that had a real real potential around it, really. And then I think the the, the change came when they moved from Guildford to Chertsey, the, the big Chertsey campus. That was, I think, real the change, and also not before that in perhaps late '99. That was when Les Edgar departed as well, and that was he was one of the co-founders of of Bullfrog with with Peter. I think, as is common with these companies when they're acquired, they often secure the original founders on a contract, and then they stay for a few years. Peter had obviously decided to move on, but Les had stayed on because it, it even said to this uh, to a few people that he'd seen that EA were increasing their control over Bullfrog, and you know it was a clash of of cultures a little bit and I think what Les wanted to do is stay on board and handle that transition and and help people uh, adapt a little bit so he stayed on really to a point and said I, I can't I can't take this any further guys I've done all I can time for me to to move on and, and the company has to evolve and I think that was the step then to to going to Chertsey and I think with EA they were they were never keen on Bullfrog taking on more than they could actually get done because the thing I learned when I was there is that you never, EA did not like you missing your ship date. If you missed your ship date, then all the kind of um, advertising and all the stuff that was geared up to support that launch was lost. And um, it was very hard to get that budget back. So Bullfrog and Molyneux had, did have this reputation of, you know, you'll get it when it's ready or if it was not quite half finished. But it was that didn't really sit well with um, EA, I think, certainly as time moved on and, we were approaching PlayStation 2 as well. You know, the games were getting more complex. Budgets were getting higher as well. So it was turned to quite a significant investment. It's like, well, we're going to have to adapt. We're going to have to change everything now because the quality bar's going up. We we can't do, we can't just continue as we were before. And I guess and they was, have more, more, more say on choice of games that were <clears> actually coming out then. Like, yeah. um, you know, it would be more in EA's favour or EA's view than maybe yeah. Bullfrog's. Yeah, so what what happened is, um, you know, there's also well, there's the infamous Dungeon Keeper three. Where that was the one of the famous ones that never saw the light of day because there was a on on the disc there was a teaser. There was like a little mini trailer because hmm. um, the game ends. Spoiler alert: with the the Reaper going through the portal and essentially going above ground. Uh, th- that was the gimmick, and the trailer was really some half finished FMV 
offcuts that we had and just like just just put a blue sky in the background and a bit of cloud and whatever and, and then just render it out as a, as a quick like 10 second teaser if that and that that was it that's all we had there was nothing else uh, so i don't want to kind of uh, spoil anybody's um uh, thoughts there if they thought there was a whole big project underway because there wasn't you know that we it was a it was a big push to get dk2 out the door um you know and it was a quite a a, a big effort to get that whole game done because it was massive really far bigger than the first one and then eventually when we moved to Chertsey and got got a bit more settled in there was a team that started looking at it tentatively as like well what would a dk3 look like you know and this is very very early days and um i know there's often there's there some stuff on the web about it and like there was a whole team working on it and they were looking at the engine and but i i never I don't ever recall it ever getting that far. And I think in the end, it was nipped in the bud because I think really with the the tone that EA were going down at that time and with certain personnel in certain positions at the exec level, a game like that was never really going to get the green light. It just didn't really kind of sit well with their brand. Um, So I think it was like, look, guys, let's not set ourselves up for massive disappointment. Let's just, you know, pause it now put it on the shelf and then maybe we'll get a chance to go back to it another time. Uh, and the same thing happened with syndicate as well. Cause they were, there were plans to do a, a next gen reboot of syndicate as so well. This which, was after, after syndicate wars. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Way after syndicate wars. So I think Mike Mann, yeah, Mike, Mike Mann was a lead artist of syndicate wars. Um, he was on DK two as well. And I think he was still, at, he was still at the studio when we moved to Chertsey, if, if memory serves. And he'd started some early work on the on a new on a new syndicate. There was a whole load of concept work being done for it as well. The very early design stages, very very early design stages. So there was no actual coding or starting to really kind of flesh anything out. And again, I think in the end they just said, "Look, let's just knock this on the head because it's never going to get it's it's never going to get the green light." And um, it was a shame. I think it would have. I mean, a new syndicate game being made for PS2 could have been incredible. And uh, I think with all, all uh, the people they had at the time in the studio could have been, you know, an incredible game. But there just wasn't the appetite for it. And I think there were certain people who led the studio at the time saw that and quickly said, look, I I, I, I want to do it, but I know that if I took this to the execs, it would just get shot down. So it's just not do that really, um, you know, which is a real shame really. But I think that was just the way EA was at the time. Well, Graham, it's been fantastic talking to you, and uh, I'd love to know what you're up to nowadays, and if you're using any of your old um, skills that you learnt, like motion capture and uh, 3D rendering nowadays. I was at EA for six, seven years, I think. Um, I'd worked on a lot of titles. I went, I worked on F1, I worked on Shocks. Um, it's really called cool Arcade Rally Game, uh, which you should check out on PS2. Cause it's, it's a it's a wicked game. I did a few of the titles as well. My hand, kind of super bikes and some other stuff, uh, and then eventually I left in 2004, and I went into film visual effects at the time. So, and I went to work for MPC in London, where I st- I worked on Troy, Kingdom of Heaven, Charlie wow. and Chocolate Factory, and that was some of the that was where my mocap work really stood me in good stead. Really, so that was where I used those skills quite a way. I, I only did a couple of years there because then. The Chancellor at the time, I think it was Gordon Brown, he killed all the tax breaks and then <laughs> all the work dried up. So I went back into games for a while, a brief spell at Codemasters and then Climax. And then I joined um, a company called Soft Image to do as a, as a technical specialist. 
Um, and then eventually they got acquired by Autodesk and I was at Autodesk until 2015. And then I'm, I'm back at MPC now um, as their marketing manager for the R&D departments now. So I'm kind of helping to promote the R&D, R&D capability and software that we use to basically create all the effects that you see right now. And uh, the last titles we've just done, so we're responsible for doing Lion King last year, for example. So that wow. was a, a big project. So there's quite a significant software development to complete that movie and of course that that helps us really um do all the really effects that you you kind of see on screen right now and it's like it's a huge undertaking and it is part of the offering that we offer to our clients as well that's awesome thanks so much for talking to us no you're very very welcome thank you for having me